Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, a podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watch Salesman. Four dogged door-to-door Bible salesmen travel from Boston to Florida on a seemingly futile quest to sell luxury editions of the good book to working-class Catholics. It's a documentary. It's a documentary series, folks. Yeah, we haven't done this in a minute. We have not, and I have purpose built a selection across 1969 to almost present day because cool. we've got some ground to cover, including this movie, which Diana isn't just a documentary. It's a documentary that is one of my movies I am bringing to you. Oh, so you had already seen this? I saw this in high school during a film club that my Spanish teacher, Senor Jambashu, Okay. Helped set up, and he presented a number of different movies to us, including this Maisley's Brothers classic documentary. I remember at the time, uh, it, it was really interesting, especially because I think this was right around the time I would have been reading Death of a Salesman. Mm-hmm. So seeing this and it dovetailing together was fascinating. And I mean, it's like watching that play, but it's real life. Yeah, and it it also feels... I mean, it's just as relevant today as it was then. It's just because now we've got a bunch of like different movies about the MLMs. It's the same thing. What's fascinating about watching it, watching this movie in particular, is that it doesn't really pass judgment. Mm-hmm. It it tries not to. Sure. It's questionable as to whether the Maisleys are like being true journalists and objective filmmakers here. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there's something interesting in that rather than try to make any statement, they just sort of turned the cameras on and let what filmed make its own statement. Well, a lot of times that is what documentaries are. Yeah. It's for the audience to decide whatever there is to decide. I think in recent years, we've had a lot less of that. Um. There, there is something to be said for I'm going out to confirm this, and that's what they do. Um, but again, I always think back to, I never know who said this, but it was said by Morgan Spurlock. It was said to him in ter- about making documentaries, and he said, if you go out to make a documentary and you make the exact film you were expecting to, you didn't listen to anybody. Because <laughs> that's not how documentaries work. I... And I, I don't necessarily think that documentaries now are, are, I don't know, I think it just depends. There are different kinds of documentaries. There are ones that are meant to give you information about a thing. There are one that are purposely exploring something. I, I feel like this one is just more exploring something. The, the interesting part about this movie is that it is very likely the first of its kind. Sure. It being made in 1969, mm-hmm. most documentaries up to this point were either educational or propaganda, some of it very good propaganda, or it was it was stilted in some way and it would be heavily, heavily edited. And there there's a handful of examples beforehand, but Salesman winds up being the touchstone for a new breed of documentary maker. Like this is the very early beginning of this style of we're going to film hundreds of hours of footage and then we're going to look at it 
and see what we have and find the narrative from there. And that's truly how they did it, is they they didn't go in searching for a narrative. They let everything play out. And as they shaped it, they saw a narrative come through. Now, what they decided the narrative was, that's up for debate. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. So there's no budget information for this movie because, quite frankly, they're, uh, it was done on absolutely nothing on a shoestring. Our directors, then, are... There's three of them. There is Albert and David Maisleys and Charlotte Zwerin. Now, the Maisleys are going to be the sort of big deal out of this. This is their debut feature. Before this, they did some shorts, including filming The Beatles' First U.S. Visit and the Monterey Pop Festival. But after this, they directed Gimme Shelter, the Christo and Jean-Claude films, Grey Gardens, and The Gates. Oh, okay. Yes. That's these gentlemen. Charlotte Zwerin worked as an editor on the early Maisley's films and is credited as a director of Salesman and Gimme Shelter, among a number of their other TV documentaries. Cool. So what do we think of the directing of this movie? I think it's very good. Um, you know, like, like you said, this is kind of the first of its kind. So they really had to be careful because it would have been so easy to direct the people. And I don't feel like they did that. I don't feel like this was like there was anything that was staged too much. Um, there's always a tiny bit of staging just so you can get certain aspects of a thing on film, but it 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 doesn't feel that way. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting you say that. There is literally, according to them, there's only one moment that is staged in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Everything right. else was filmed off the cuff and. There's there's two things about it that make it so compelling to me. One was the choice of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. The choice to make it about door-to-door salesmen. Mm-hmm. Dovetails perfectly, and part of this was out of necessity, but part of this is also the style of using the sort of handheld black and white cameras that they had. Yeah. Those two factors working together just blend perfectly. Yeah. Like everything feels so real and gritty literally because there's film grain all over the place Mm -hmm. which is cool and because of that you feel like you're watching you feel like you're watching a home movie yeah this is would be somebody filming with their iphone being like i'm at work today this is what it looks like yeah and on top of that the the beautiful part like i say is there's no judgment Mm -hmm. one way or the other that there's a recognition of like the this is an honest hustle. This is what these guys have to do. <laughs> oh, it is not an honest hustle. But I mean, like, I think they. I think their point is we're not going to tell you that these guys are bad because they do this. No, that that it's the, the point job. of the documentary is like we're showing you what these guys, what their life is. Yeah, this is their job. This is their life. Whether you like this job or not, whatever you think of a salesman. This is what it looks like for them. And that's fine. That's interesting. And they succeed and they fail. And they continue to push to try to make the money. But on occasion, they don't get it. It seems like a lot of them do not get it. But I love that it's not so much that they get it. They're like, oh, I got, I got, I was able to get a full one because I got four quarters. Which essentially is they just got the first installment for four people. So they sold a whole book. That's really all they were trying to do. And. It's so hard. It's a hard, hard job. And by the time they made this movie, 
being a door-to-door salesman had completely gone by the wayside. Mm-hmm. I mean, Death of a Salesman came out in 1949, I believe. Mm-hmm. So we're 20 years past that. Mm-hmm. Madison Avenue's already happened. Mad Men. Mad Men's happened. TV's advertising. We have supermarkets. Door-to-door salesmen are almost done. Yeah, let's do it. And now the only door-to-door salesmen you get are typically local vendors mm-hmm. who are doing work in your area, which is perfectly cool. Like, I have no problem with that whatsoever. I, mm-hmm. I typically answer the door and say no thanks. But, like, yeah, that makes sense. But guys driving from town to town trying to make money and going to other locations, mm-hmm. it just doesn't happen. And you're watching it unfold as the whole industry dies in front of you. Yeah, I particularly loved this, like the team meeting about, you know, if you're not getting it, it's because you're not hustling enough. It's because you're not trying hard enough. And I remember I worked at Barnes & Noble for a very short period of time. And I only worked there for a short period of time because we had a very abusive manager. But I remember basically because I didn't sell enough memberships, I had to go to like a remediation training, which is basically where we it was like Saturday detention for booksellers where we had to (laughs) listen to our manager say these exact things like if you're not getting it it's because you're not trying hard enough and it's like he's like tell me all the excuses you get from people and like this is mm, 2008 2009 like we're talking financial crisis 1.0 here people didn't have money for stupid shit like that and he he tried to give us a reason i was like i'm not going to be that person i personally am not a salesperson i don't like being sold to and i am not going to sell to people sell to people if you don't want it i'm not going to work harder to get your money i don't care but that's what this movie reminded me of constantly that and the whole multi-level marketing stuff i i appreciate that as you get into the weeds with them you go to these meetings and they all talk about the success stories and then you get on the road with them and they're like yeah, we're just trying to make 50 bucks a day. Yeah. Like this we do is that. What I have and to we... make to be okay. Yeah. They, they want to make enough to cover the travel costs and send a little bit of scratch home. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it is truly a, a time capsule. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of a photograph that somehow gets put on film. And mm-hmm. it's really the very first instance of this. Um, the Maisley's intention was to make a nonfiction feature film mm-hmm. in the style of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Okay. Now, this is before anything had come out around that and his too deep involvement in the story. But the Maisleys had profiled Truman Capote in 1965 in a short documentary. Mm. His publisher with Random House, Joe Fox, encouraged the Maisleys to pursue films in the same vein. So they thought around different ideas, and they themselves had worked as door-to-door salesmen before they went into filming. Love it. Uh, They hawked fuller brushes and encyclopedias, and in looking at different sales companies, they settled on the Mid-American Bible Company. Mm. So their work as salesmen served in them getting footage of the sales pitches in people's homes. They would actually become part of the pitch... And tell the people that they went into that they were filming it as part of a human interest story. Mm-hmm. That being said, what I do know is that everyone involved was usually paid around a dollar to be involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The salesmen each, I believe, were paid around $100. Mm-hmm. 
It's about $925 in today's money for all their time. Not horrible. And all told, the film was self-funded by these two at a cost of around $100,000 for a total of $925,000 in today's money. They had no money to make this movie, and they just sort of came up with it on their own. Yeah, because it was weird and different, and I like it. The closing credits actually give us some indication of how the process worked mm-hmm. because they were filming during 1966 and 1967. Quote, the filming team of Albert and David Maisley's went home to home to Boston to take another look at the kind of people they grew up with. The idea for the film was researched and developed by David Maisley's, who found the salesman. The photography was by Albert Maisley's, and the film was edited by David Maisley's and Charlotte Zwerin. Cool. And so typically what would happen is Albert would be behind the camera, David would actually be running the sound and also just capturing anything. And supposedly there's only one moment that was actually staged, and that is, or, or at least interviewed and prodded, and that is the moment when Paul Brennan, the Badger, reveals the names and personalities of his fellow salesmen. Yeah, that makes sense. That's the only thing they prodded. The rest of this was just purely cut from hours of footage. Sure, because that's when somebody said something off the cuff and they're like, wait, what? We need more context. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to explain that one to us, which makes sense. That's uh, That is in today's thing. That would be like the face-to-face confessional that you do with the director where, where they ask direct questions. Yep. That's I mean, and the fact was they they wanted to avoid it at all costs. They only did it for that one moment. Sure. That makes sense. The Maisleys would actually look at the salesman's schedules and then arrange when and where to film based on their different travel schedules. Mm-hmm. They would film the subjects and send the footage to Zwerin, who would look at it, provide feedback, and guide them on what else they might need to gather. Mm. Then David Maisleys and Charlotte Zwerin went into the editing room. And the idea originally was to do a film around all four of the salesmen. Mm -hmm. But they realized they didn't have enough footage. And that was when they decided that the vast majority of footage that they had centered around Paul Brennan, the Badger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as they edited, they said, ah, he is our story. Yeah. So that was the interesting thing. They, They initially wanted it to be about all four guys and each of them. But it turned out the story they got was Paul with the others as the side characters watching him. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about those subjects, shall we? Just to get a, some perspective. First, we have Paul Brennan as the Badger. Mm-hmm. What do we think of Mr. Irish Brogue? He is definitely a character. <laughs> he is, he's the guy who most clearly demonstrates that like there's my personality and then there's this the badger personality which is this is what i put on to get this job done um which is fun and interesting well and he is the quintessential salesman character of absolutely fed up with the entire thing Mm -hmm. but also really only has himself to blame for a lot of it Mm -hmm. and it's it's hard to just say that outright like you know, you have no idea what he's dealing with, but then like every turn he makes, he hasn't studied the maps, he hasn't gone to the right place, he's grumpy and rough around the edges and kind of combative. Yeah. And so the whole time the impression you're left with him is, do you even want to do this anymore? Yeah. And I think the answer is, maybe not, but this is the life I have. Well, he doesn't know what else to do. 
It's interesting, though, that once he does get a foothold in Florida and they go to the warmer climate and suddenly he's able to turn, he finds that charm again. Mm-hmm. It's real interesting. The, the, the ebbs and flows for each of the guys throughout the story is really interesting to watch when they hit a rough patch and they're like, all right, how am I going to adapt my pitch? Mm-hmm. Like, what do I need to change right now to help fix this? We have Charles McDevitt as the Gipper, fresh faced. Clean cut. Mm-hmm. He looks like a baby. Mr. All-American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not here for any of Paul's crap. We have James Baker as the rabbit. Mm-hmm. Mile a minute. Yeah. Those sequences with him where he just keeps going on and on and on about the, the sort of fold-out encyclopedia. Oh, yeah. He doesn't let people talk, which is what's very funny. Yeah. He's just like, I, I'm going to badger. Like, he's really kind of the badger. <laughs> that way but i also like that paul the reason paul says it was like you know he's the badger because he will continue to follow up until they get it done this guy's the rabbit because he has he has all the endurance mm-hmm. he just doesn't quit yeah and finally raymond martos as the bull big beefy boy uh we also have kenny turner as the supervisor my god what an asshole mm-hmm. the very prototypical boss who you just love to hate Mm-hmm. And finally, in his resplendent white suit, Melbourne I. Feltman, credited as designer and theological consultant, aka the world's greatest salesman of the world's best seller. <laughs> I mean, I guess this could beg the question from you, because I'm interested in this. How do you feel about the fact that it's Bible sales? I mean, that it's a little conflicting just because I am. I would say de-churched, um, <laughs> which is fine. But it's just funny because I I know that language that they're using. And it's so, they so use that prosperity gospel as part of their pitch. So again, uh, that that's all, you know, if you know any of that verbiage, you know, if you've got a prosperity gospel preacher, same fucking thing. That's all he is as a salesman. I'm going to tell you all the good things that you're going to get out of this and um, anything bad. It's your fault. It's your fault. That's it. And that's this whole concept. So that was interesting, but it was playing on a lot of different levels. So I felt like this is still a very relevant documentary. Well, I think it's it's really fascinating. I mean, in its time, it had to be somewhat shocking because we're still a relatively conservative Christian society in 1969. Mm-hmm. Okay. Granted, there's a huge counterculture going on, and likely the people that saw this movie had very different views. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing to me is not so much that it's brash and confronting about it, mm-hmm. as it is that these guys are so casual in how they don't really care about the religion part of it. Sure. Like, they care enough when they are selling it. Sure. And you get the sense that they're all pretty much culturally Catholic or just Christian. They know enough to do what they need to do. But also, they get back to the hotel and they're drinking beers and playing poker mm-hmm. and watching the fight. They don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. They're not pious. Like, it is very, very fascinating how they just capture the starkness of that part of it. Mm-hmm. That it's just like, this is a job. Yeah. The, the, there, there are no, like, there, there's nothing to sort of glean here other than this is just what we do as a job it's a thing that we do for money yeah 
All right. Well, this was not uh, nominated for any Academy Awards or anything. However, it was selected to the National Film Registry in 1992. Very cool. So a couple of pieces of trivia. Trivia. This film almost did not make it to any screen. Okay. The Maisleys could not get distribution because distributors found it too depressing and realistic. Oh, see, I didn't find it depressing at all. For 1969, I could I could understand people being like, this is too dark about the Bible. Fair. Whereas I don't think it's really that bleak. I think parts of it are sad. But, you know, then they'll flip it around and make it interesting and engaging. And it's it's far more just slice of life than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the brothers wound up having to self-distribute the film. I mean, that's okay. They booked the theaters themselves for the movie. I mean, Gumption. What did... What's his butt do for the room? Well, I mean, here's the thing. The next year they made the movie about the the death of the 1960s with the Rolling Stones at Altamont. So they went from this to the Rolling Stones nightmare of Hell's Angels stabbing people. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what to say. Now, the film generally gained a lot of positive reception when it was seen. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the New York Times talked about how it is really an evergreen movie, which is true. Yep. I think no matter when you watch this, no matter what time in history after it was made, it still really fits American culture. Sure. And the fact that it was a very prime example of cinema verite. Mm-hmm. However, the next year, Pauline Kael, noted cinema rabble rouser, would stir up a big controversy around this movie. Okay. She was giving a negative review of the Maisley's Gimme Shelter in The New Yorker, and she claimed that Salesman was not direct cinema. She alleged that the film was set up and the salesmen were acting. Okay. Particularly, she stated that the Maisley's had recruited Paul Brennan for the role, saying he was not a salesman but in the roofing and siding business. And adding to some of this controversy was that Brennan's own comments after the film came out had him saying that he sort of thought of himself as an actor in the movie. Okay. He'd even been approached for a role after the movie was made. Okay. The Maisleys strongly denied this and threatened a libel suit against the New Yorker. Good for them. They wrote an open letter to the magazine, mm-hmm. and it was not published until a book about documentaries was made in 1996 because the New Yorker prohibited publication. Mm-hmm. Of such things. The letter noted that Brennan had sold Bibles for eight years prior to making the film, mm-hmm. and they had told Kale's researchers as such, and she could find that out by contacting the Mid American Bible Company. <laughs> yep, she didn't do her job. So nothing else ever came up about this. Nobody else ever dug in further. It's very likely in a charitable reading, and I think this is probably right because Pauline Kale is, was a fantastic critic despite mm-hmm. being a bit contrarian. She probably got some bad information. Sure. And in the midst of being overzealous and writing a bad review, she probably pushed too far. Well, probably what she did was that she didn't like the movie, didn't like what it was, so she went searching for dirt instead of what the story was. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's no indication that a lawsuit was ever filed, that there was any settlement. So mm-hmm. bottom line, This was real. This was all very real. (laughs) Now, this does bring up one interesting question before we wrap this up, which is, are the Maisleys sufficiently objective? There is a debate about this movie, and we'll talk about it before we wrap up. 
some fellow documentarians would state that the filming and editing of a, a film being made 90 minutes long out of 100 hours of footage destroyed any objectivity that they had in the process. The Maisleys would claim that they were, quote, using the camera with love, unquote, trying to find a deeper emotional truth behind the hours of footage they put together. So I would ask you, how do you feel about that? Do you feel this is true cinema verite? Or do you think there's something else going on? And do you think that's okay? I think cinema verite is a very specific thing. And I don't think documentaries such as this are that. (laughs) Which is fine. That doesn't mean that this is not... True. Yeah. It doesn't mean that this is some crafted image of these gentlemen. It's... We wanted to take a look at this. This I think this is probably just an earlier example of we're interested in this specific topic and in watching all of our footage. We followed them. We did this. We did that. We realized this is what spoke to us. This is what was interesting. And that's what we're going to present to people. It doesn't discount anything else. They didn't pretend anything. They're not crafting that, you know, this guy's perfect when he's an asshole. It's just this is this guy's life. This is the guy who really spoke to us. That's what we're going to show you. His life was interesting to us. Um, And that's fine. And that's kind of how many documentaries should be. Um, You know, we've certainly seen some where it's like you had a story right there and you did not focus on it. (laughs) I mean, I think our number one uh, example for that was the September issue. Yeah. It's not a bad documentary, but the documentary they should have been making, they didn't do. There was so much that they just looked away from for no good reason. Well, they they stuck too closely to what they clearly were more interested in, and it didn't play. And it's like, wait, no, go go over there. Go talk to Grace. She is the story. And there is a difference between, I mean, there's also the thing of making an archival documentary versus... Mm-hmm. this style where you're filming someone on the fly. But I do think that if I, I really do think if you're saying we're going to approach topic and mm-hmm. see what comes out of it, this is the way to do that. Yeah, that's I, I think that's fair. You gather a lot of footage and then you look at that footage and you say, where's what's the story? Mm-hmm. Where where is the unique story to be told here? And what does it have to say about all of us? And that's how you make documentaries that mean a whole lot to a lot of people. Well, I mean, look at the last, again, the last time we did these, our favorite one, the best one we watched was Tickled. And that's what those guys did. They're like, huh, this is an interesting thing. Let's ask some questions. Oh, holy fuck. I have more questions. Let's keep going. The movie was completely different than what we anticipated it to be because... They paid attention to what was happening. And that leads us to ratings. Ratings. Okay. For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this movie, we are going to do uh, the world's bestseller at a cost of $49.95 in 1969, which is roughly $460 today. No, thank you. <laughs> These Bibles were not cheap. Yeah, well, they were illustrated and blah, blah. It was a showpiece of the house, man. But f- 500 bucks for a Bible. Wow. Yeah, that's. I don't love Jesus that much. Sorry. How 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 many Bibles are you going to give this movie, Diana? It is your movie. You have to go first. It is. It is my movie. I forget this. Um, I'm gonna go five. Oh, babe. There's nothing to fault on it, and it is such a perfect prime example of a kind of documentary. Mm-hmm. 
like these guys made stuff better than this going on. Grey Gardens is a true masterpiece. But this is just so subtle, smart. It doesn't judge its subjects, which is crucial mm-hmm. because that allows all of the different images and moments to really bubble up and flourish and resonate mm-hmm. over time. And that's not to say that there aren't documentaries. We're not, I, I can say this because we're not doing any of his movies here. Michael Moore makes great documentaries as well, but they're agitprop. They're a very different thing. His is definitely more confirmation bias. It's, I think this, and I'm going to go find the stuff that supports that. Yeah. He, it's, it's a thesis that he is asserting by giving you footage. Sure. And that's one thing. And I think a lot of movies can sort of drift that direction now. It's rare to find somebody who, and part of this is because you have to get funding for these movies, Sure, is to find someone who has the resources and the time to be able to say, now we're just going to follow some people around for a year and see what happens. Well, and I'm also going to give it a five because they, they accomplished their goal. They told us a very good story. I didn't feel like they were leading the witness. I didn't feel like I was getting, again, confirmation bias from the documentarians. It was, I'm going to take you on this journey so you can learn about these people. Yeah. And that's very good. So that's why it's a five. Um, there, There isn't something where I'm like, oh, I wish they would have gotten more of that guy. Like, I don't feel like I have any unanswered questions from this documentary, no. which is also great. And that doesn't mean it's a bad, like having unanswered questions do- isn't a bad thing, but because this story is over i'm fine with it as is so it's a five yeah get all those illustrated bibles put them in your home put them on the mantle or show them off (laughs) and then transfer into the world of forgery and fakery okay we are going to move a few years on from from a movie that was built on basically nothing (laughs) duct tape and and twine to one of our finest American filmmakers, Diana Orson Welles. Oh, okay. I don't making a movie about fakes. Okay, I like I like the concept of fakes, and I don't know that I've seen any Orson Welles movies, so I oh man. <laughs> I know, that's a different problem. <laughs> and so we are going to watch 1973's F for Fake. Okay. I've heard all about this, but I've never seen it. I don't I don't know the specifics involved, just that Orson Welles decided to make a a little documentary about fakery and forgery and may have had some fun with it on his own. Hmm. All right. Hmm. Sounds good. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.